Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. I don't think it's overt racism that prompts a congregant to ask an Asian mother in our lobby if she is the babysitter, or to ask a black congregant to take their drink order at a bar mitzvah reception. But the impact of this is undeniable. Jews of color experience racism in our community. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. Today on the show, I'm speaking to one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. She's not a prosecutor or a politician or a policy expert. She's my friend and rabbi, Angela Bookdahl. Now, if you look Jewish, you've never been asked these questions. They only get asked of strangers. And because Jews of color hear these questions every time we walk into a Jewish community, that's exactly how we feel, like a perpetual stranger. It's exhausting. Rabbi Angela Bookdahl is a remarkable and influential figure, not just in my life, but for millions of Jews. She's the first Asian American and the first woman to be named Senior Rabbi of Central Synagogue here in Manhattan, which is one of the oldest and largest synagogues in the country. Her ascension was a transformative moment for Judaism, and she's renowned as one of the leading voices of our faith. She led Hanukkah services with President Obama at the White House, and Jews all over the world turned to her as a profound source of spiritual affirmation and provocation. With all of that said, you might still be asking yourself why I invited a rabbi on this podcast. And the answer is that Angela's words often prompt me to reflect on the points of overlap between my spiritual and professional lives, 
Throughout this intro, you've been hearing snippets from a very powerful sermon she delivered this past Yom Kippur. We are in the midst of a national discussion about race and racism in America that is long overdue. On this holiest day of atonement, there may be no more important accounting we each need to make than to examine our own racial assumptions and prejudices. The Jewish community needs to see the fight against racism in our country as our fight. But tonight, I focus on racism within our own Jewish community. Because as a rabbi, I have to clean my house first. Questions about my faith and identity have already cropped up in the Manhattan DA race. And coming out of the 2020 presidential election, with Kamala Harris shattering boundaries of both racism and sexism to become vice president-elect, these issues feel particularly urgent. I couldn't think of anyone better qualified to help me sort through it all than Rabbi Bookdahl. You know, Angela, obviously I've known you a really long time. Uh, we first met when I was in high school and uh, you were in college and now you are my rabbi and I am your congregant. And yet when I was sitting in the virtual synagogue on Yom Kippur and you gave that spectacular sermon about Jews of color, I realized that in all the years, decades that we've known each other, I don't think we've ever really had a conversation about both being Jews of color. And it it moved me deeply, your sermon. And it particularly resonated with me because now that I'm a couple months into this campaign, this question of how to categorize myself has been very much on my mind. Mm. Um, and uh, I find that there really is a lack of imagination out there in, in terms of dissociating Judaism from whiteness. So, you know, on the one hand, I have people say to me, well, I mean, you can't be a person of color, you're Jewish. And, <laughs> you know, and on the other hand, I, if I emphasize, for example, in my launch video, my story um, leaving Iran and my family history there, and the reaction was, it, make, it makes it sound like you're not Jewish. Aren't you proud to be Jewish, right? And so I really actually just want to thank you for lifting up this conversation in that way and to ask you, what moved you to talk about this issue and to talk about it now? It's been building. I think that my evolution and my understanding of race has changed over the years. Um, actually, I went to the first magnet school for voluntary desegregation in the country. So I went to a school that was in a predominantly black and poor neighborhood. My classes were over 50% black um, students. And there was a black is beautiful alphabet around my classroom. And we sang the, the black national anthem at every assembly along with the Star Spangled Banner. I didn't think of it as unusual because that was just what my life was at the time. But I remember as I got older, I recognized that that was actually kind of a radical act that my parents were sending me to that yes. school. Yes. And I asked my mother why did you send me to McCarver? And she said, it's the best education. And, <laughs> and I just, it was such an answer from a Korean mother and a Jewish mother as well. But like, yeah. but I think that um, what she meant by that was not just that it was, had special gifted programs and it was the reason that, you know, it was a magnet school, but 
her understanding that the best education was not just about like having lots of advanced classes, but actually being educated to be a citizen of the world in a way. The, the strange thing is growing up, the only all white spaces I was in was when I was in synagogue. <laughs> uh, and that's when it was like, you're so different. Whereas right. in my school, which was so multiracial, um, it just everyone like it was majority people of color. So it was interesting for me that mm. it's not that I didn't see it as an issue, but it didn't become politicized for me until I was much older. And I would say that the education around issues around criminal justice and racial justice and some of the systemic issues that still persist today um, has been an evolving education for me. So when George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Maude Aubrey, all of these cases that really kind of fomented a kind of awakening for the country, Mm -hmm. um, I knew I wanted to talk about race. And I started doing a lot more reading. And I intended to make this a sermon about larger race issues nationally. But what was interesting for me is in light of these um, larger national conversations, Jews of color community were coming together to have our own conversations. And I was so distressed that out of like the 25 of us that were gathering, I was literally the only one that was affiliated with like a traditional Jewish community of any kind. I thought to myself, we are losing these incredible Jews. And they say, I love Judaism. I can't find a Jewish home that feels comfortable. And I started having that conversation in several pockets. And I realized there's a national conversation going on, but there is a conversation that hasn't happened yet in our own house. That is so fascinating, Angela. First of all, I never knew that about the way you grew up. And when you say synagogue was the, the whitest place I was ever in, <laughs> that was so that was for me as a kid, that it, it's just it's so strange because on the one hand, it's home and it's at the heart of who we are. And on the other hand, I felt different and excluded really every single day in synagogue and in school because I grew up in Orthodox Jewish Mm. yeshivas um, where the only brown kids were the ones that I was related to, you know. (laughs) Um, And, you know, sometimes it was like like an actual aggression, uh, which felt big even if it wasn't particularly at the time. I remember uh, in elementary school, we were often late and not for nothing. We also lived the farthest away from school uh, than anybody else. And I remember the principal said to my father one day, um, so the morning prayers, as you know, before our listener are called shacharit, and that's a a universal tradition uh, to pray in the morning. And the rabbi said to my dad, I don't know if you had shacharit in Iran, but here (laughs) we get up in the morning and we pray because that was the first period that I was late to. And I remember my father was just so wounded at that allegation that you're really not one of us and you don't even necessarily participate in the most basic traditions um, that define our people. And you became a leader of the Jewish people and a rabbi and the leader of the synagogue, uh, rather than to be pushed out and or to feel pushed out. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and whether that was a struggle for you. You know, I think also this is a little bit about my own personality type. And I think I might recognize this in you a little bit, Tali. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I often figure out what I'm capable of when I'm challenged and told that I can't do it. You know, when I was told I wasn't a real Jew, which I was told when I was in Israel, it was deeply painful. And yet at the same time, I suddenly felt like, wait, who who let you get to decide that? And and, and our tradition doesn't have a pope where there's sort of like an authority from God that's like right. a singular voice. And um, I think that that was 
in some ways was the impetus for me saying, I'm going to be a rabbi. I'll tell you how Jewish I am. And so it wasn't, you know, out of spite, but it just sort of helped me understand, wait a minute, in some ways, the pushback was clarifying. It took me a long time to realize that that's fuel in the tank. You know, every time, every time that happens. But how did you arrive at the moment of knowing that you wanted to be the leader? And do you bring all of these experiences that we've talked about? I've always enjoyed um, leading. I mean, I know that sounds crazy. But when I say that, it's not because I want to. Um, it's because I actually really see a path that I think can be better. And I feel like I understand how to get people to understand that that's where we need to go. Like that is something I feel deeply. I feel this need for it. And I think that ultimately the idea that I could have the potential to lead a flagship historic large synagogue that had ramifications for the larger movement and Judaism in general, and that had a platform that was way larger than just our membership, but really a platform to amplify, I think, the message of Judaism to our own constituency and beyond into the, like, the wider world, the potential to shape that was something that I felt like I could not turn down. And, you know, I also heard, Angela, in your story, a woman's story, which <laughs> I think is also important to say, if I have a vision, I have to put my vision into the world. That That's how important the vision is, can be hard and it feels immodest and yet also completely necessary. Yeah. You know, I'd like to think that my imagination is bigger than what I've just seen in my life, but it took a lot of imagination to picture myself in that position just because I didn't forget about seeing someone Korean. I just didn't see women in these positions and I didn't see mothers with young kids in these positions. And when I looked at my 73 year old predecessor, I was sort of like, how am I going to do that job? And I realized at some point I realized I'm not going to do that job. I'm going to do a different job. You know? right? And, and you have to reshape what that job looks like. But it took me a while to kind of get to that. And I think society has become very comfortable with really great women in the number two position. And it, Absolutely. I will tell you that the society is still not quite comfortable with women in the number one position. Right. But I, I would say that that, um, I grew up and as I'm sure you did Tali with parents that said, you can do anything that anyone else can do. And I actually really believe that. And when I got to Yale, I actually found it like weird and anachronistic that we had a women's center. I was like, why do we need this now? Like we're right. so we've arrived, like we don't need this. And I, and I actually found that like, I was so naive and I didn't fully appreciate literally until I was applying for the senior rabbi job, what real sexism felt like. Um, I have never experienced such sexism as when I applied for that job. And I was really? doing it in a position where people already knew me, but the stuff that was coming at me was shocking. Some of it was a little more veiled, like Angela, you know, you're so spiritual. Um, are you sure you want to do the development work and the management mm -hmm. work? Just sort of like, you know, and then there's that word that people throw out when they don't have a better word for it, which is like, do you have the gravitas? Which mm -hmm. Just like, are you a 60 year old man? That's what gravitas is. It's like the way they can say the thing that you don't look like a leader that we're used to. And that was literally asked at my interview if I had the gravitas. And I just kind of came back and said, I will never be a 60 year old male rabbi if that's what you're looking for. But <laughs> gravitas is about being able to uh, lead a community, have a vision for it. I mean, you have to decide if I can do that. But it was... I so I'm in the midst of applying in a way for a leadership job, and I am in a kind of shock at some of what I hear. You know, so my version of gravitas is: Are you tough enough? Right, and, <laughs> right. And you're supposed to protect us. Like, are you tough enough? And 
it, it's so deep seated where that comes from that you can't, you almost can't even talk to it. Like it's, it's not enough to say, well, I've done murder cases. I've done the right. toughest things that, you know, a person can do. And also I know what it's like to be an immigrant. I mean, talk about tough, right? It's your voice is not deep enough. You're not the vision of what I have when I think about who's going to keep me safe. And it's like, well, I'm actually not going to be patrolling outside of your house. Like it's <laughs> But uh, the thing about the number two, I'll tell you an interesting thing. Um, and our election it does not have ranked choice voting. But part of why ranked choice voting is taking hold around the country is that studies show that women do really well in ranked choice voting, where you rank the candidates, not just pick you know one person to win, because turns out a lot of people are very comfortable saying that a woman would make a great number two. Right. Ugh. Of course. And if you add up all the twos, then it turns out actually what they really want is for the woman to be in charge, but they just can't. They just can't say they it on the ballot. I yeah. know. And so uh, you wanted to stimulate a reckoning inside our community. And so before we get to some of the national issues around that, what are some of the things that we can be doing better? We need to remember that uh, the Jewish community, to, to know our history well enough to know that we've always been a mixed multitude. Uh, mm. I suggested that rather than thinking of Judaism as a race, we think of ourselves as a family. And family can be by birth. And there's there's power to that sense of like, you know, my ancestors before me. But, you know, also true family comes through adoption, through choice. And I liked, I really particularly like the model of covenant. In, you know, you can become the closest of family to someone who is not a blood relative at all, which is your spouse. And that person, you know, till death do you part, uh, this person is as close to you as anyone. And you do that because you enter into a covenant with them. And that idea of a covenantal relationship creating a bond that is stronger than almost anything else is not one that I'm making up. This comes from our Torah, that our relationship with God is done through covenant. And so the yes. idea that if you are saying, I'm bound to that covenant, I will be committed to that. That should be the litmus test for being a part of the Jewish people rather than I've got a Jewish mother or I've got some Jewish bloodline or whatever it is. And that I think is really important. And I, and I will not to usurp going to the national question, but I think that there's this also this assumption about who are real Americans. Um, and there is yes. an assumption that the real American is a white American uh, whatever that means. And, you know, in the 1950s, I think America was 90% white. So I understand that there was this picture historically, you know, depends on where in history you want to mark this, by the way, we can go far back enough and it was definitely not white. Right. Um, but, you know, if you think about that and now today it's very different, but there's still all these questions of, it's interesting how almost every person of color is a hyphenated American, except for white Americans. You know, you're a black American. Right. You know, when Christy Young, right. who's a third generation Japanese American, when she won the Olympic medal, they kept referring to her as Japanese American. She couldn't just be American. Right. And I, I find that, that that the hyphenated identities for people of color just makes the assumption that plain American is white. And I just... Mm -hmm challenge that assumption. And I think that there's a certain way that that's also applicable within the Jewish community, um, that, that model. And I, I was trying to draw a not too subtle line that the way that we're behaving mm. and the assumptions we're making within our Jewish community are really not so dissimilar from what's happening in the American conversation as well. What can we as Jews bring into that conversation? How can we help? I think that part of what is needed is a 
a kind of a radical empathy for the experience of other Americans. And, um, and in particular, right now, I would want and want to push the American community at writ large to really reckon with what the experience might be for immigrants or undocumented workers in our country uh, to be a black or brown American right now. And I think that one of the great gifts that the Jewish tradition has taught us is that our biggest master narrative, the mm-hmm. story in which we reference um, more than any other in our entire tradition is the story of having once been a stranger, having been yes. enslaved. And it's not just that we retell this at our Passover Seder every year. We retell it not as ancient history. We actually are obligated to say each generation I was a slave to actually try to embody that experience and to understand it. Um, And so I would like venture that that model of kind of radical empathy of not just saying, I'm sorry, a long time ago, there was a time when maybe my ancestors were immigrants too, to actually say, I'm going to try to really get inside what that feels like right now for myself, because I will never be able to um, appreciate what this is without that. It should not be that we say we have to help our black American brothers and sisters because we feel paternalistic or because we feel uh, pity. It should actually be because we really know what that feels like. And that is just the right thing. And we wouldn't do that to our brother or sister. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think you know that I agree with that deeply. And this is a choice we've made, uh, to have our origin story, something that I've talked about um, in various episodes of this show, be a story of slavery and to say, this is who we are. Mm -hmm. We are slaves in this moment. And I try to take that with me. Uh, I have to tell you every day to work. And and I would add just one gloss on that. And it's only a gloss, which is uh, aside from radical empathy, I think that that demand that our tradition makes of us to feel that in this very moment, we are in Egypt. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the world around you and say, this is not okay. Our tradition says, come with empathy and also come kind of agitated. Absolutely. And I would would add one more level to this, which I love this dialogue, is that ultimately redemption cannot be just for us. It is not an individual redemption. I think that there are some traditions where each person can be individually saved. Uh, We we really believe in a collective redemption. So in a sense, if if we are free and liberated, but our brothers and sisters are not, that's not a true redemption. And so there is both the mandate of the empathy and then the mandate to come agitated and work towards it, but also to understand that true freedom doesn't come until all of us can be redeemed. One thing that I've often reflected on is, well, why does our tradition also say that you're supposed to turn away the convert. Um, We're supposed to turn the convert away three times before actually letting them in. And, you know, I always used to think even as a kid, well, if we thought like our tradition was the best, like, why wouldn't we want to spread it into the world, Uh, which is also a totally coherent view and really an act of love in in its own way to want to bring other people along. And I think it's because we also are committed to the idea of pluralism and Mm. there being different communities existing in the world all at the same time. So the vision is not for everybody to adopt the same beliefs and to all start to look alike um, and to all be the same. And so lay that over radical empathy, agitation, right? Collective redemption (laughs) redemption and liberation. And then you say, I'm not, my community is not liberated until 
the other community, my neighbor's community, is also liberated. And I find that enormously helpful because, you know, sometimes in the course of history, one community is up and one community is down. And I think that this to me is much deeper than saying, well, we are a people who have been persecuted and have suffered. And so, you know, we're, we're with you on the persecution and suffering. That seems to me kind of facile. Um, where, whereas this, I, I find there's just a forward momentum when I think about being a Jew in the world in this way. Mm. Beautiful. Hopefully you will be in a position to do even more about that. You've already done a bunch. And I hope that, that from the, the platform that I'm in, that, that we can do more of that as well, because that is what this is about. Thank you for setting the example that you do, Angela, every day. And I'm, I'm so excited uh, to see where you take only this, this latest of, of many, um, really many calls to justice that you have issued over the years. Thank you, Tali. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tali, and Rabbi Bookdahl's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement. I am running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tally4da.com to learn more about my campaign. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Hearing. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.